Jesus, um, you hold all of our sorrow in your hands, all of our grief. And Lord, I don't know what everyone in here is going through, and I know uh, they could be going through just as brutal of, of heart pain as, as what we've experienced. But Jesus, you know. And Father, your church is here to build up and to establish, Lord, hearts that will stand in faith and stand on grace and stand trusting you, Lord. And I pray that you would equip us by your Holy Spirit to, to be there for those who are hurting. Lord, our church, Lord, we have suffered, we have hurt, we have, many of us have been through really difficult times, and I know, Father, that that is not wasted when we come to you. But, Lord, you're going to use it, you have used it, and, Lord, you have, if we didn't go through those things, we would not be the people we are today. And we would not be able to fully trust you, we would not be able to throw ourselves upon you and say, Jesus, save us. Because we know we can't save ourselves. We've been convinced that we do not have the resources in our own flesh. God, that we need a spirit, an external spirit, to come and indwell us. And that's exactly what you offer and what you give to all who call upon your name. So Jesus, we call upon your name. We stand, Lord, even with all the pain that we felt and everything we've gone through, we stand knowing, Jesus, that you love us. And you will not abandon us. And that suffering with you transforms into our good. It is not a waste. God, we put our hope, our eyes just on you, Jesus. We love you. In your name, Jesus, we pray. And according to your will, we pray. Amen. All right, today's study is called, Oops, I Forgot I Was Married. which I hope you've never said. I hope that that just hasn't crossed your lips, but it may have. And today we're going to see a, a story where Abraham very well could have said that. So if you'd open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 20, and I'm going to read to you as you're opening to uh, Psalm 38 or 34, 18. And it says, The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and save such as have a contrite spirit. That verse means a lot to me. I've been through very difficult times in my life, and um, I know that you guys have too. And this verse is just one of those transcendent verses that, that rocks my world every time I hear it. Like God just says, I have a very special place in my heart for those who have a broken heart. Well, why do you think he does? Why do you think God chooses to draw near to those who have a broken heart? I think it's probably because he knows all too well how they feel. He knows what it's like. Anyone who's had a broken heart knows that it's more than just an emotion, right? It's a physical pain. You feel it. It's like heartburn. It's the reason why they call it heartburn. It feel, inside, in your heart, you just feel a pain that will not go away. Well, Jesus died with a broken heart. He knows how it feels, and he draws near because he died with a broken heart. Or some people say he actually died of a broken heart. 
We read in John's Gospel, in chapter 19, that one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and out of it flowed water and blood. C. Truman Davis is a a doctor, and he writes concerning the medical significance of this blood and water, and he says, uh, we therefore have rather conclusive post-mortem evidence that our Lord died, not of the usual crucifixion death of suffocation, but of heart failure. Heart failure that began to develop in the garden when he was sweating great drops of blood and continued to build as he was rejected by many of his disciples and the whole world and came to utter fruition when his people nailed him to a cross. So he says, this doctor, let me suggest that Jesus died from stress-induced cardiomyopathy as a result from the rejection, rejection and grief and the Father's wrath being poured out to him on the cross and the rejection of the people that he loved. Revelation 2.4 Jesus is talking, he says, Nevertheless, I have this one thing against you, my church in Ephesus, and my church in general. You have left your first love. Why did Jesus die on the cross? How did Jesus die on the cross? He died with a heart that literally exploded from grief and from pain. Because Jesus loves you. You hear that often. Someone says, well, don't, you don't know what to say. Say, Jesus loves you. But we have no idea what's carried in weight behind those words. That's what it's all about. And if you or I abandon that relationship of love, it breaks his heart. It breaks his heart. And we're going to see a story in Genesis chapter 20 where Abraham forgets about love. He forgets about that relationship of marriage that's supposed to just picture love. He forgets about it. How could he do that? Let's look in Genesis chapter 20. Abraham journeyed from there to the south and dwelt between Kadesh and Shur, and he stayed in Gerar. Now Abraham said to his wife, she is, as Abraham said of his wife, uh, Sarah, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. How is this 90-year-old woman such a hot commodity? The real reason, you know, you might say, wow, she's totally beautiful. And there's evidence that she was the most beautiful woman of that entire age, the Cindy Crawford of that world or whatever. But... The real reason is, is this is more of a political union. Kings would do anything it took to gain advantage in the world that they had. And we don't think of kings like the king of Germany or something. Think of little city-states where kings ruled over a small area, and they were constantly trying to better their relationship with the people around them, increase their influence, increase their power. And so they would develop a kind of harem. And you guys have heard of a harem. We had all these women. And it was much more about the political benefits that these kings were gaining rather than romance. Because obviously you're not going to have romance 
with more than one woman. It just doesn't work. Anyone tried it? You don't, probably don't raise your hand if you're married, but it does not work. Because for there to be any sort of romance, there has to be isolation. There has to be that connection, that one-on-one connection. So it just doesn't work. So it wasn't purely romantic, and it was mostly to gain advantage of who these women were from. And so kings would commonly send someone from their family, maybe a sister, a niece, a daughter, and they would send them to another king so that they could gain the advantage too. Even if they cared and loved for them. In fact, it was seen in that culture as a caring and loving thing to do. To say, hey, I'm going to send you to someone for this political advantage because your life is going to be better monetarily. You're going to have more security because they don't want to make me mad. And if they treat you poorly, I'm going to come after them with my army. And we've already seen Abraham has a well-trained militia. He was respected in this land for his military strength. So it was kind of like sending him off with a full-ride scholarship. And who is Sarah connected to? She's connected to Abraham, the richest man in the neighborhood. Even though he doesn't have an area he's really reigning over, he's still the most powerful guy in this entire area. So he's a man that everyone wanted to get on the good side of. So look again at the situation. Abraham is the one who initiates this deal. He's trying to gain a political advantage by trickery. He has no problem selling out his wife for a little bit of financial, political favor and advantage. Instead of of trusting God, that God is going to provide everything he needs, which we've seen God has been providing everything he needs every step of the way, but instead of just trusting God and that relationship he has with God, where God is his God and provider, no, he gets greedy and fleshly. Instead of keeping his family together, he has no problem separating the people that should not be separated, his own wife. He's more interested in making a buck than representing Jesus to the world through his marriage. That's what's going on here. Marriage is intended to be a huge megaphone of God's love and his grace to the world, of two people dying to their own desires to live in a loving union and serving one another. That's how Jesus and us works. So Abraham, he might be thinking about improving his family's position in the world, but he's in truth and reality ripping his family apart. That's what's going on. And Sarah seems to be all about it too. Instead of trusting in the Lord, they have this joint plan to get some blessings by their own efforts. We would be stupid to not take advantage of this opportunity, right? I mean, Abimelech, he doesn't know us. He doesn't know I'm your wife. Look, we could come in. I could say I'm your sister. We could get and we could join this advantage. And then I'll come back, Abraham, and we'll be all right. We're 90 years old anyway. I I don't want to worry about the consequences right now. But we could get this advantage. But where do blessings come from? Only God, right? So, can sin be blessed by God? No. And this happens so often when 
someone has an affair and, and they leave behind their marriage, even if it was difficult. And in this affair, they think, I just, I, now I want God to bless this new marriage that I have. What? You think that God is going to bless something started in sin? What's born of flesh is flesh, and what's born of spirit is spirit. And we have to remember that. You are going to be missing out on the blessings of God. And you might, it, you might look at it and it might look easier. It might look funner. It might look more um, like blessings. But the reality is it's all fleshly, man-made blessings. And God is standing on the outside and saying, when are you going to get right with me? When are you going to get right with me? And that doesn't mean if you're if your marriage started in sin right now, that you need to divorce your current spouse and go back. No, that's not what I'm saying. You, can, you just need to repent and acknowledge that you were trying to get your blessings in the flesh. You were trying to get it by sin. Didn't Abraham learn his lesson last time? That's a great question. I know as we read this, you're all, didn't we study this before? But I thought it was Pharaoh, right? yes. Abraham had done this already with Pharaoh. He had lied about Sarah being his sister and the whole thing. And yes, he probably did learn his lesson. But just because he had learned it back then and even experienced victory after that does not mean that he can or will automatically do what's right later in life. Our victory over sin does not come through knowledge or us saying, I've learned the secret. Our victory over sin does not come through experience. Oh, I've learned my lesson. Our victory over sin does not come through effort. Oh, I've learned how to give it my all. Our victory over sin only comes through the Spirit. Only the Spirit. I've learned how to be filled with Jesus. That's where victory comes from. In Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 5, it says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin, and death for what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh god did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh sinful flesh on account of sin he condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit For those who live in the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Being yielded or or surrendered to the Spirit is the only way we can avoid the domination of sin, the infection of sin in our lives. And this is great news. Nothing is required of us except surrender. 
That's where the victory comes from. That's where grace can be poured out into our lives is when we surrender in humility and faith. That's such a key, a key thing. Nothing is required but surrender. Laying down, giving up, giving in to the life of Jesus. Not to the life of Sean. Spurgeon says, here's your weekly Spurgeon quote, observe carefully that in the flesh there are, uh, sorry, observe carefully that the flesh is there. He does not walk after it, but it is there. It is there striving and warring and vexing and grieving, and it will be there till he is taken up into heaven. It is there as an alien and detested force and not there so as to have dominion over him. He does not walk after it nor practically obey it. He does not accept it as his guide nor allow it to drive him to rebellion. Paul says in Romans, you got to walk after the Spirit. Set your mind on the things of the Spirit. What is Abraham doing? Abraham, he's taking a break from the Spirit. Saying, I deserve a break today. I deserve a little bit of flesh time. I don't have to trust God with absolutely everything and surrender to God's will in absolutely everything. I can control my own thing with me and Sarah here. And it's going to lead to disaster. How do I experience this life? How can I experience this life that Paul talks about of surrender? Well, let's look at it practically. What am I going to do today? Well, if your mind is set for spirit, you're going to ask it this way. What does Jesus have for me today? What would expand his kingdom? Not how can I make my kingdom bigger today? How can my job be a little bit more blessed today? How can I get a little bit ahead in the world? No, how will Jesus' kingdom be expanded today? It's thy kingdom come, right? We don't pray my kingdom come. You know, should I, should I spend my day on a marathon of leave it to beaver? Or, or pour out my life in service to someone? I've never even seen leave it to beaver, but I imagine you could do a marathon of it. Should I entertain myself or someone, or should I disciple someone? Am I going to surrender to that? Do I compete with someone? I think I'm better than you. Or should I comfort someone? Am I going to surrender to that? Is it a me day or is it a kingdom day? And this is how it can happen because we could have many good days in a row where we're seeking after God's kingdom. And then all of a sudden, oh, it's a me day today. And what happens? You find yourself, Abraham, giving your wife to Abimelech, and you're like, I don't even know how this happened. It's because your flesh never left you. Your flesh was always there. It's not going to leave you. It's an everyday thing. Jesus is an everyday thing. John the Baptist said it perfectly. He must increase and I must decrease every day. Every day I have to be more surrendered to Jesus than yesterday. If you're not, your flesh is rising up and you're going to experience consequences. He pours his life into these empty vessels daily. That's how it works. But there come days that I want a day for myself. 
Even when we've been walking with the Lord for a long period of time, our flesh has been waiting patiently for its opportunity. My boys and I were watching a snake video called Speed Kills, and this snake can wait for a week without moving a muscle until this little mouse came by, and then it showed it, eat the mouse, and it was like crazy. That's our flesh. It'll wait for the opportunity. And that's what we see in Abraham's life today. You might say, I've been doing great. Why can't I have a little bit of something that I want? You can't expect me to think about only Jesus all the time, can you? Well, that's actually what Jesus demands. He demands our life, our heart. Not any works, our heart. He'll take care of the works if we give him our heart. There's a, there's a perversion of Christianity out there where they say Jesus pays for everything. And he's paid for all your sin. And so what he offers you is total forgiveness. And for you to just come to church on Sunday. And that's not the deal. The deal is Jesus says, give me your entire life. Focus it on me and what I did on the cross. And I will give you the obedience that you need. I will give you your life. Forgiveness is yours. Everything you need will come to you. But it takes surrender your attention, surrender your heart to the Lord. Well, let's look on a little bit deeper into into this Genesis 20, because it gets even better. He says in verse 3, But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Indeed, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. But Abimelech had not come near her, and he said, Lord, will you slay a righteous nation also? Did he not say to me, she is my sister? And she even herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. And God said to him in a dream, yes, I know that you did this in the integrity of your heart, for I also withheld you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Therefore, now therefore, restore this man's wife, for he is a prophet and he will pray for you and you shall live. But you shall not Uh, But if you do not restore her, know that you shall surely die, you and all that are yours. Wow. So why is it such a big deal for God to intervene in this situation? And the answer is because he has a promise at stake. God has made a promise to Abraham that Sarah would bear him a child. And that through this child, the Messiah would come. So God is... His promise has been made, and so God cannot let any other man come close to Sarah. It's God's deal. He couldn't even, he wouldn't even let Abraham mess this up. Even how bad Abraham is messing up right now. When God makes a promise, he defends it even against your stupid choices. And I love that about him. The womb that was going to bring forth the son of promise, who would eventually bring forth God's Messiah, God was not going to leave this matter up to man. The second thing I notice in here is God calls Abraham a prophet. And it's crazy because that's the first time this word is used in the entire Bible. Prophet. It means a spokesman or speaker. God chooses flawed people to be his spokesman. 
which is awesome because that's why I'm here. And that also lets you, doesn't let you off the hook from being a spokesman for God out in the world because no matter how screwed you up you are, none of you have given your wife to marry someone else. And Abraham's like the first prophet. So yes, God can use us as prophets. And all of the prophets in the Old Testament were flawed. The message that God was giving to the world was, was basically partial at best. He would give glimpses of what was going to come in his perfect revelation to, to man. But that flawed message just wasn't good enough. God needed a better messenger, a more faithful representation, a perfect spokesman. Enter Jesus. In Hebrews chapter 1, it starts out, in Hebrews, uh, it says, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, like Abraham, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made all the worlds. So he knows what's going on. He gets it. Now, this is what God needed. He needed his son to be the spokesman to the world, to actually speak to the world. God has desired to say something to the world. Ever since it was created, ever since Adam fell in the garden, God's been wanting to say something, and he says it perfectly in Jesus Christ. Let all who thirst for God, for the living God, draw near and listen to what Jesus says. Listen to the words of God, recorded in the word of God, foretelling and chronicling the life of the Son of God. The fact that God speaks to man means that he considers man to be worthy of a conversation. God desires us to hear him. He could have left himself hidden, but he chooses to speak, to reveal, to explain. And it breaks my heart when people don't know God's message. When you say, what does it take to get to heaven? And they say, oh, if your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, you'll get to heaven and God will say, good enough. Or I th my grandma was a good person, so I get to go to heaven. Or I'm an American, so obviously I'm a Christian. All grossly inaccurate of God's true message. God's true message that you're a horrible, terrible, wicked sinner in rebellion against God. But God sent his son to take, take that away, to pay the price, the penalty, be your substitutes. And now you may have a perfect relationship with God through Jesus Christ alone. Not on what you do, but what he did. And in that, people don't know it. People still don't know it. America does not know it anymore. There's been so many... Uh, in this book, I read Radical by Dave Platt just recently. Uh, there's so many statistics about how 40% uh, of America's Christians or blah, blah, blah. And the real reality is that less than 8% of America actually has a born-again relationship with Jesus Christ. Eight out of 100 people. We are not a Christian nation. Maybe by cultural, maybe some cultural things, but not in reality. We need missionaries to come to America. Our church needs to send out missionaries to America because people need to hear the true witness of what Jesus actually said about himself. He actually said these things, which is what God 
wanted the world to know. It was a huge message of I love you. So why is that hard to go out and say? It's not. Well, Abraham was a prophet. Abimelech is mad at him now. Abimelech uh, has been confronted by God, and God says, I know. And so we get to verse 8 now. So Abimelech rose early in the morning, called his servants, and told all these things in their hearing. And the men were very much afraid. So, so equate that in your mind. So they had the fear of God. They were afraid of God, okay? Just remember that. Now in verse 9, Now Abimelech called Abraham and said, What have you done to us? How have I offended you that you brought on me and on my kingdom a great sin? He said, I didn't want a sin, Abraham. You have done deeds to me that ought not to be done, bro. Verse 10, then Abimelech said to Abraham, what did you even have in view that you have done this thing? And Abraham said, because I thought surely the fear of God is not in this place and they will kill me on account of my wife. Abraham, this is not how to share the gospel with the world. Just think that they're terrible people. Just think that they don't fear God. Abimelech feared God. If Abraham would have come in, oh, we'll get to that in just a second. The fear of God is not in Abraham right now. That's who's not afraid of God. Abraham's like, yeah, I can sin because I'm, a, I'm afraid. And he's just not being the light of the world. And he's not, he's just walking in darkness right now. All because of choosing to not trust in the Lord, but to trust in his own plans and his own ideas. So verse 12, but indeed, she is truly my sister. She is the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. And so it came to pass that God, when God caused me to wander, we're going to come back to that phrase, so remember it. When God caused me to wander from my father's house, that I said to her, this is the kindness that you should do for me in every place, wherever you go, say of me, he is my brother. So Abraham tries to justify his lack of trusting God. You can always figure out a way to justify not trusting in God. There's always another option. It takes a humble heart to not seek out ways to accomplish things in our flesh. Because only a humble heart says, no matter what I do, God, I'm going to screw it up. And you think, well, that's not what my teachers told me growing up. They told me I could do it. They told me self-esteem. They told me this, that. And God says in his word, the truth of his word is no, you will mess it up. Stop trying to do it without me. A humble heart says, I can't do it without you. I need you. In this morning, I need you. Tomorrow morning, I need you. The next morning, I need you. Humility says that. There's always that other option, though. Your flesh is always saying, you can do it today. But look, at, I mean, he said, to, God caused me to wander. Here is the final, most terrible failure of Abraham's heart right here. He actually blames God. The Hebrew word uh, to wander occurs exactly 50 times in the scriptures. And never in a good sense. It's used of animals going astray, of drunken men reeling and staggering, of sinful seduction, of a prophet's lies causing people to err, and of a path of a lying heart. That's what this Hebrew word means. Six other words uh, are translated wander, 
uh, any one of which Abraham might have used, but the, he used the worst word available. In other words, he could have said six other ways that God caused me to journey, God caused me to go, God called me out. But no, he said, God caused me to wander, and I'm mad about it. I'm ticked off that he did this. I was happy in Ur. And this is his flesh speaking, because we know his heart. We know at times when he's following after the Lord that he's been filled with the Spirit and filled with love and thanksgiving. But he, right now, his flesh is, is ticked off. And he's like, you know what? I didn't want to leave anyway. My, my wife is hot, and I hate having to deal with that. Look how weird he is. He's ticked off about his wife being hot. Anyway, Abraham should have said, Forgive me, Abimelech, for dishonoring both you and my God. My selfish cowardice overwhelmed me, and I denied my God by fearing that he who called me could not take care of me. He is not as your gods of wood and stone. He is the God of glory. He is the living God, the creator, the most high God, the possessor of heaven and earth. And he told me he would be my shield and my exceedingly great reward and my supplier of all my needs. And in sinning against him, I have sinned against you. Forgive me, Abimelech. Wouldn't that have been great if that was written here? But Abraham, no. Henry Barnhouse wrote that little thing. No, he says, verse 14, Abimelech took some sheep and some oxen, some male and female servants, and he gave them to Abraham. And he restored Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, see, my land is before you. Dwell as it pleases you. Then Sarah, he, then to Sarah, he said, behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. Indeed, this vindicates you before all who are with you and before everybody. Thus she was rebuked. Abraham, so Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, his wife, and his female servants, and they bore children. And the Lord, for the Lord had closed up all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. So Abimelech, he just rebukes Abraham and Sarah. He, he rebukes Abraham by treating him according to his lie. And he rebukes, he refuses to call Abraham her husband, which just I'm sure, killed him. Because Abraham didn't want her to just be his sister. He loved her, but he forgot about it. He said, oops, I forgot I was married. You see, he became ashamed of their relationship. This is shameful what Abraham did. It is full of shame. It's brutal. And it didn't have to be this way. In Mark chapter 8, we're going to apply this now into our lives, okay? In Mark chapter 8, verse 38, it says, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of the Father and with his holy angels. We can't sacrifice our relationship with God or Jesus for an easier life. That's what Abraham did. And it caused him shame, and now God's ashamed, and there's shame everywhere. And Jesus said, don't be ashamed of me, of the relationship. You are the bride of Christ. 
You are the Sarah in this story. But God is not ashamed of you like Abraham is of Sarah. No, you are the bride of Christ. You're engaged to Jesus. That's the truth of the Bible. And for uh, faithfulness to Jesus now in this world, in this life, is like waiting for a wedding and not sleeping around. Anytime we give our hearts to something other than God, we are committing spiritual adultery during the period of our engagement. God says he gives us the Holy Spirit when we come to believe in him, and that's the wedding ring that shows that you're engaged. It's the promise that we have. And he says, from that point, the moment you come to believe, don't let your heart stray from me. Keep your heart close to me. Why do we do communion? For that, that our heart stays close to him, that we constantly remember how he broke his body for us and spilled out his blood, that we remember his deeds of love. It's engagement, it's relationship, it's marriage, us and God. In 2 Corinthians 11.2, Paul says, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Abraham and Sarah are experiencing shame in their relationship, and Jesus says that will happen to some people when he comes again also. Some of his own people will be ashamed because they were sleeping around on him during the period of their engagement. From the moment they got saved, for the rest of their life, there were times when they were addicted to video games. There were times when they were addicted to their jobs and success or money. And Jesus says, it breaks my heart. Just like a husband whose heart would be broken on the day he got married when he found out his wife was not pure. Paul says, don't do it. I am jealous for you. I am jealous for you. Paul was seeking in 2 Corinthians with all his heart to keep it from happening. By keeping us focused on our relationship with Jesus and not on a list of rules. It's a great theme of 2 Corinthians. On what Jesus did for you and not what you can do for him. On your real and effective, effectual relationship with Jesus. That's got to be our focus. That's what keeps us in love with him. Sarah and Abraham should have been all about their marriage all about their relationship. Anything else leads to shame. Abraham is full of shame now. He's ashamed of Abimelech. Abimelech's ashamed of him. There's just shame everywhere. Jesus says, don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed of me. The next verse in 2 Corinthians eleven three 3 states it perfectly. But I fear, Paul says, lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may have been corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Don't forget you're married. Your heart is married. Your spirit is the engagement ring. Your heart can rejoice in his love and faithfulness every day while you wait for the consummation. It's all yours. 
Don't forget, it's that simple. Jesus is just your groom. You are the bride. It's about falling in love with Jesus every day. Like one of my favorite movies, 51st Dates. She forgets every day, and he comes to her and causes her to fall in love with him every day. It's really sweet. It makes me cry. He doesn't care that she can't remember. He constantly, because of his great love for her, woos her again every day. And it's really awesome. And I find that Jesus does the same with me every day. And he knows that some days I totally forget that I'm married to him. And my heart strays. And he pulls me back. He's the one that does it. And he gives us a tool that's really great to help us with that, and that's communion. Where we constantly remind ourselves of his great love. Maybe our hearts just get forgetful. We have amnesia hearts. Luke twenty two nineteen says he took bread and he gave thanks and he broke it and he gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for, for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Remember, remember. We have to constantly remember because our minds want to think about anything else right now except what Jesus does. We want to think about how hard the seats are, how we never have to be in this building again. We want to think about what we have going on after church. We want to think about whatever. And Jesus is saying, no, focus on your relationship with me and I'll take care of all the details of all that other stuff. We have a danger ahead of us because we're moving into a new building. And we can so easily think that we're going to be somehow in a different level in our relationship with God, in our life as a church, because we have a building. And the truth is we can so easily drift away from Jesus Christ. And I don't want us to do that. I refuse to do that. We're going to keep taking communion so that we don't do that. We're going to keep communion from becoming just a, just a tradition. We can't let it become just a tradition. Let your hearts daily remember its first love. No matter what your life is, the first day you received love was the first day you received Jesus as your Savior. That's your first love. Was it your love for him? No, it was his love for you that captured your heart. He says, go back to your first love. We read again, Revelations 2, 4, Nevertheless, I have this against you. I'm ashamed of one thing. You've forgotten or you've left your first love. We refuse to let that happen, right? It's Jesus and nothing else in our lives. 